Well, if you have a Bible there with you, uh, we are continuing our study through the book of 1 Timothy, and we are finally moving on to the next passage in the book. We're done with verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, that'll be our sermon text today. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Give ear to the Word of God. Paul writes, in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13, he writes, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, Faithful in all things, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, for a number of weeks, we looked at the previous passage, which gave us the biblical qualifications for the office of overseer or elder. In the church, and our text this morning gives briefly the, the qualifications for the office of deacon, the other office uh, for the church in the New Testament age. Um, what What is a deacon? Many, some of you probably know, some of you may have served in the past as, as something like that. Um, the word in the Greek, uh, diakonos, just means servant. In fact, you can tell we get our English word from a kind of a transliteration of the word. Diakonos, deacon. We, we just made up a word. We just made up the word to sound like the Greek word because it was easier that way, I guess. You know, the, the Apostle Paul was not ashamed to refer to himself using that same word. In uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, he writes this. This is how one should regard us. How? As servants, diakonoi, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul was an apostle, and yet Paul viewed himself not literally as the office of deacon, but as a deacon, as a servant. In fact, Paul uses an even more uh, stronger term elsewhere in the New Testament. He calls himself a slave, a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, Some of your translations, the ESV, at times renders that word, doulos, as servant as well, because I think sometimes they feel like it's less offensive Paul calls himself a slave of Christ or a bond servant. It's, it's another level than just being a servant. Now, the word deacon in, in your New Testament is found only in our text a number of times, as well as in Philippians 1, verse 1, where Paul says, to the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi, and he adds, with the overseers and deacons. So he's addressing the church, and he includes the officers in addressing that church. And the other four times you find it in, in the New Testament are in the text we just read here in chapter 8. Uh, most of the time in your New Testament, the word diakonos is translated not as an official term deacon, but just as servant. It's, it's, that's the basic idea of the word. Now you might know the scripture don't, doesn't tell us a lot about the office of deacon. You know, many believe, and I believe they're right, that Acts chapter 6 gives the account uh, in the scripture of the origin of the office of deacon, but it doesn't use the word in the text. 
If you were to read Acts 6, you won't see the word deacon in there. What you see is a description of what deacons are and what they are to do. So we're going to look this morning uh, during the sermon, a little, briefly at least, at Acts chapter 6, at that passage. I think it has a lot to help us understand what a deacon is and what a deacon is to do. Um, there is often some confusion about the office of deacon, even where, where it's held. Uh, in some churches, some, some Baptist churches and others, you might know that deacons function much like what we in Presbyterian churches would understand to be that of the role of the office of elder. You, you may have been, maybe some of you have been in churches where the deacon board functioned as the elder board. They just used the other term uh, for it. Uh, you might know the Roman Catholic churches. They have deacons as well, but their deacons do a far different thing than what you read of in Acts 6. In fact, deacons in the Roman Catholic Church and others uh, very often are associated with some of the things that we might think of as being the role of a pastor. They do baptisms, they do funerals, they do marriages. They're often uh, involved in the sacraments as well, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. Even, even preaching the homilies in the church. And so you can see that the, the word deacon, while it's used in many different churches, it's, it's understood in a lot of different, uh, a number of different ways. Uh, the Westminster Standards, you might know, has a, a section called the form of church government, which is just what it sounds like, the way the church is to be run and the offices in it. And it has a very brief note about the office of deacon. It says, the scripture doth, it's King James kind of language, does, I'll say, the scripture does hold out deacons as distinct officers in the church whose office is perpetual, to whose office it belongs not to preach the word or administer the sacraments, but to take special care in distributing to the necessities of the poor. It's a, it's a ministry, an office that's associated with a ministry of help and mercy. The PCA's Book of Church Order likewise says this. It says, the office of deacon is set forth in the scriptures as ordinary. Now, that what they mean by that is it's not an extraordinary office. They're, they're making a distinction, as we often do. Maybe you've never heard this kind of language before, but extraordinary office would be apostle and prophet, things that were not perpetual. They were for a short time in the early church's history. So the, the office of deacon is set forth in the scripture as ordinary and perpetual. It's to be going as long as the church goes. In the church, the office is one of sympathy and service after the example of our Lord Jesus. It expresses also the communion of the saints, especially in the helping one another in time of need. I think that's help, a helpful way to put it. It's, it's an office of sympathy and service. It's an office of helping those in need. Now, the, that the Apostle Paul speaks about the office of deacon in some length in our text, I think, ought to be enough for us to want to have a thorough and biblical understanding of what this office is about, this vitally important office of the church. And our Lord Jesus Christ instituted this office for the good of his church, for very good reason. So we should spend some time. I think it would be helpful for us as a church to look at these things and have a good understanding of what it is and what the qualifications are. So what I thought we should do is at least briefly look at the origin of the office, which is found, I believe, in Acts 6. Not everybody uh, is in agreement that that's what Acts 6 is about, uh, but I, I believe that is uh, what Acts 6 tells us about the origin of the office of deacon. And so if you want to look at Acts 6, the first seven verses of Acts 6, I'll read it briefly. It says, Acts 6, 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, remember, 
the, the, the church was growing by the thousands, literally, in the early chapters of Acts. So quite, quite a lot of people there. When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. So complaints in churches are not a new thing. It happened in the early church. You know, people often look, oh, if we just were in the good old days of the early church when everything was perfect. No, the apostles would shake their head if they heard that. No, no, we had, we actually had complaints. I don't know if they had a complaint department, but I'm guessing they went right to the apostles. Uh, but they had a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, rose against the Hebrews, the Jews in, in the church, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. They were, they were providing them with food and things for their daily necessities. And the twelve, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to, the, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the whole, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. They ordained them to office before the whole church. The apostles laid their hands on them and prayed for them. And notice all those names that's been pointed out many times are Greek names. They, they chose people that would be, everyone in the church would know full well that they would have no bias against the Hellenists in the church. They would make sure those people, uh, the Greek Christians, would be taken care of. And then verse 7 adds this, as if to impress upon us what God did because of that and through that and how important that was. It says in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. They didn't ordain them to preach, although if you read further on in Acts 7, uh, Stephen does just that. So he did more than than serve tables, but God used their service uh, to those in need to make the gospel go even further and to make many come to faith. Now, now we see that this office rose out of a need for assistance in what we think of as mercy ministry, those in need. That should always be something that we are aware of and cognizant of and take whatever steps we can do to help with. James one twenty seven says this, it says, Religion, nothing wrong with the word religion, religion is pure, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And what does he say it is? to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, it, there's a sense in which without that, with that without helping the, those who are in need, especially in within the church, that we don't have pure and undefiled religion. We have some kind of mess, some kind of mixed bag that isn't what would God would be pleasing to God. The early church knew that truth and took it to heart early on. They saw the needs and Almost no one had to tell them to do something about it. And so the church was ministering to the daily needs of the widows in, in their midst. You know, the widows were people that didn't have the ability to provide for their own needs. Uh, they didn't really have any work that they could do. And if you might know it, actually, as we go later on in First Timothy, in chapter 5, Paul actually addresses the widows in the church where Timothy was. So it was a common thing that they had uh, to address. And, and so much... 
Much of the work of helping the widows and orphans and such was being placed on the shoulders of the apostles themselves. And I'm sure they were more than happy to do it, but it was, it was causing them to not be able to do the work that they really were called to do. It was keeping them from, the, from prayer and the ministry of the word, as it says in verse 4. And they went so far as to say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables in verse 2. Now that, to our ears, maybe you're hearing that and you're saying, boy, it sounds like they have quite the ego. You know, they're not good enough to serve tables. That's not what they were saying. They're not saying, hey, you know, we're up here and you all are down here. They're saying, we're doing this and it's keeping us from doing that. That's what God called us, what Jesus Christ called us to do. It wasn't that serving tables was beneath them, but it, it was keeping them from what Christ had called them to do. In fact, what Christ, what, what only they at the time really could do uh, at that time in the church. And so they instructed the church to appoint men to handle that ministry in their place. And, and not just any would do. You know, they didn't just say to the people, pick ten guys, you know, draw names out of a hat, draw straws, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, do whatever you want. That's not, nothing like that is what they said. Uh, they told them, uh, it says, it says, therefore, brothers, verse three, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So that sounds pretty brief, but there's three things at least in that passage, and I think some of it is reflected in our passage in First Timothy three, three basic qualifications that they had to look for, and that we should bear in mind when we search out and ordain deacons as well. First. They had to be men of good repute. It's, it's kind of the same thing Paul says in our text and earlier in chapter 3 when he says they had to be what? Above reproach or blameless. That's the main point. They were to be men of good reputation. Uh, their godly character had, was the first qualification. Their godly character was the most important qualification as it is for any office in the church, elder or for deacon. Second, he says they had to be full of the Holy Spirit. You might say, why would you need that to serve tables? Well, you do need that to do this ministry in the church. Spirit-filled men are a must for any ministry in the church, even for serving tables. It's that important. The Holy Spirit's influence and work must be evident in a man's life. And what does that mean? What do you, wh- how do you know if someone is full of the Holy Spirit? You know, in some churches they'll say, oh, well, they'll speak in tongues or some other kind of thing. That's not what the Bible recommends to us. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the result, the evidence of the Spirit's work. In in Galatians chapter 5, Paul teaches us about the fruit of the Spirit and what kinds of things are evident in such a man. If he's filled with the Spirit, Paul talks about in Galatians 5, 22 to 23, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in a Christian's life. The third thing, they had to be full of wisdom. Not just full of the Holy Spirit, but full of wisdom that they might discern the best way to make sure all these needs were met and that everybody was taken care of properly. So, you know, we, we often talk about, and rightly so, you know, Proverbs 31 women, and guys, those are the kind of women you should look for if you're not married yet. That's what you should look for. Well, we need Proverbs men, too. Men full of wisdom. And where do you get wisdom from? The Scriptures. Even the book of Proverbs gives you wisdom more than your teachers in some ways, the Bible says. 
And what was the result of, of all that? When the early church, when those complaints arose, when they followed the instructions of the apostles, Acts 6-7, what does it say? And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Word got around. People knew, what does Jesus say? They'll know you're a Christians, how? If you love one another. How do they know your faith is real? That's how they see it. When we, when we care for one another in the church, and even those outside of the church, it's, nobody can deny that the faith is real, and that the gospel is real. So the word of God increased, it spread, the disciples multiplied, sinners came to saving faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, and even a lot of the priests came to Christ and became obedient to the faith. So the church grew. It was already growing. That was half the problem in some ways, but now the church was growing even more. And so I think it's a serious mistake to view the work of the deacons or any work of service in the church as being somehow unimportant or unspiritual, because what was the result of that, of that seemingly unspiritual-looking work? The church grew, and many came to saving faith in Christ. And so the work of deacons, both then as well as now, played a part in the spread of the gospel and of disciples being made in Jerusalem. And all that was probably not just because they freed the apostles up to preach. That certainly must have been a part of it, right? They, they, they took that off their plate and they were able to, able to preach, but I think it's more than that. I think God, God blesses those things when we just do what he says, when we serve in the way that he ordains us to do good things by God's grace, happen. So I asked this morning, you know, do you want to see the church grow? Not just our church, the church in general, but do you want to see the church grow? Do you want to see people come to saving faith in Christ for salvation? Um, get your hands dirty. Serve tables. Serve in little ways that nobody thinks about, nobody might even notice. Help take care of those in need in the church and even outside of it. Perhaps some of you should even consider aspiring to the office of deacon. I think that's something you should seriously consider, some of you. The way to start, though, is to just serve. You know, it's uh, you know sometimes I know when I was younger I used to have this dumb fantasy, this dumb thought. Of, you know, if I hit the lottery, if I won like a, a billion dollars, then I'd be really charitable. It's probably not true, right? Because what's the question you have to ask? Are you charitable now? Are you charitable with the little that you have? Why should God believe you're going to be charitable with the big stuff you have? Well, in the same way, like you don't wait to become ordained as a deacon to start serving. In a lot of ways, that's how the church recognizes the deacons in the first place. You serve. You find ways to serve and to meet needs. The way to start is simply to serve whenever you see a need arise. Well, let's get back to our text, although it does dovetail with Acts 6. The qualifications for the office of deacon that Paul gives us in our text. We're going to look at a number of them this morning. We're not going to finish the whole text, but uh, some of them are, I don't want to say redundant because the Bible puts them there twice, but they're the same as we looked at in some ways in the previous text. But Paul lays out for us in some detail the qualifications for this office of deacon, and these are the godly character qualities and traits that you and I, as members of the church, are to look for in potential deacons and other officers in the church, such as elders. These are to be the godly character qualities. Again, I know we keep saying this over and over again, but I think it bears repeating. All of these qualities that we're reading about for officers, for elders, and for deacons are to be the aspiration of every church member. 
All these godly character traits, the fruits of the Spirit, are things that we are to aspire to and seek to attain by God's grace in our own lives. They're not just for the officers of the church. You know, we don't say, well, I'd serve or help somebody in need, but I'm not a deacon. That's obviously not what the Bible would, would teach. And the first thing that jumps off the page, at least for me, is in verse 8 where Paul says, and it's a little word that you might not think about. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, likewise, or in the, or in the same manner. Um, for Paul to say likewise here, what is he pointing back to? The previous passage, the qualifications for the office of overseer or elder. So for Paul to say it that way, for him to, to say this just like that, deacons the same way as the elders, I think, for Paul to say it that way shows us the seriousness with which uh, we ought to consider the office of deacon. How highly we should esteem the office of deacon, how, how important the office of deacon is, and how important the qualifications for the office of deacon are. Those things are required not just for the elders, but for the deacons and with good reason. For Paul to say likewise here, I think, also indicates that even though these are you know, the qualifications of two distinct offices of the, of the church, even though those offices are different, the qualifications, for the most part, are identical. The only real obvious difference in some ways is that Paul, for the elder, says what? Able to teach. And if you read Acts 7, you get the drift that Stephen, a deacon, was able to teach too. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, that he didn't have the ability to teach. So I think for that reason, you know, the fact that he repeats some of the same qualifications as he did for elders, because of that, we're not going to spend quite so much time on the passage. I think everybody, most of us have been here for that, and I'll refer you back to that, but we'll spend a little bit of time on that as well. Uh, he says a deacon must be, quote, dignified or honorable, verse 8. So just as an elder must not be a drunkard, even so, he says a deacon must be someone who is, quote, not addicted to much wine. As Paul teaches in Ephesians 5.18, being drunk with wine, in, in a lot of ways, is the very opposite of being filled with the Spirit. Because what does Paul say in Ephesians 5.18? Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be what? He doesn't just say, don't get drunk. Right? I mean, he says that. But he doesn't stop there. He says, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or waste, but rather do what? Be filled with something or someone else. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the difference. In the same way that, that being drunk, being under the influence in the wrong way, alters your behavior, alters the things you do, and influences them for bad, the Holy Spirit, in, in a way, influences and controls you in a way that is pleasing to God. Likewise, just as an elder must not be a lover of money, Paul says in verse 3, even so a man who would serve as a deacon must be someone, he says in verse 8, who is not greedy for dishonest gain. You know, it's, it's probably obvious, maybe you're, you already understand when I say it, why that would be so important for an elder or a deacon. You know, the, the, the elders and deacons are very often entrusted necessarily with money and other resources in the church, and so that can be a source of great temptation. If someone is greedy for money and you're putting them in a position where they are responsible for money and other such things, that can be a temptation too much for some to bear. Remember, even Judas himself, what does the Bible tell us? Judas, one of the twelve, 
uh, actually took things from the money bag at times. And he was entrusted with the money. The other disciples never would have guessed uh, from what I can gather from the text. Verse 9, Paul says, Deacons must what? Must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's that's kind of, in some ways, I think, the same as what Paul says in the first passage about being above reproach or being blameless. Not just right doctrine and profession of faith are required, as important as those are, but a clear conscience or a pure conscience. Those two things have to go together for someone to serve the Lord and be blessed in what he does. Paul spoke of this very thing, really the same phrase in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 18-19. He tells Timothy, so it's not just for deacons, he tells Timothy too, he tells Timothy that he must wage the good warfare, and how is he to do that? Holding faith and a good conscience. Same phrase. Even Timothy, the one leading that church and the one who's supposed to put the elders in place and help them find the deacons and ordain them, had to hold to faith and a good conscience in order to fight the good fight. He goes on in verses 19 to 20 of chapter 1 to tell Timothy, he says, by rejecting this, rejecting what? Having faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. That's a violent image. Paul was in a shipwreck in the book of Acts. I mean, think about what that is a picture of, of someone's faith. That by rejecting faith in a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And then he names names. We don't like doing that these days, but he says, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Church discipline. Paul cast them out, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Faith and a good conscience are a must for anyone who would serve God. But that's especially true of those who would hold office, elder or deacon, in God's church. Now, the last thing in this list of qualifications that we're going to go over this morning, we'll go over the rest on a following Sunday, is found in verse 10 where Paul says, And let them also uh, be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So those who would serve as deacons must be tested first, Paul says, before they're ordained to office. And the goal of such testing or proving is what? It's to show that they're blameless. It's a matter of proving them or them proving themselves to be blameless. And so you get the idea that even even then, they, they chose those seven men, they had already shown themselves to be blameless. But you get the idea they probably enlisted other people to help them. And that was kind of a proving ground. They would see how they handled the responsibility of their mercy ministries and giving to those who were in need. So there's a period of testing and proving that they're worthy of the office and they should be set aside and ordained to it. I'll ask you this morning, some of you, are you considering aspiring to the office of deacon? That's a good thing. It's not an ego thing. It is not a pride thing. You know, we often think that way. I I think that way. We don't want to take upon ourselves anything that makes us look like we're arrogant or prideful. What does he say in verse 1 of the entire chapter? If a man aspires to the office of overseer, he aspires to a what? A noble task or a good work, more literally. It's a good thing if, if you aspire to the office of deacon or to the office of elder. That is a noble aspiration. And we were watching uh, a show uh, on, on TV about the space shuttle 
recently, and and uh, one of the astronauts uh, that got to go, I, I don't remember the quote, but he was like, when he was a kid, he never dreamed he could be an astronaut. Like that was a thing. You know, when you're a little kid, you know, we ask Luke sometimes, "What do you want to be? I want to be a police officer." You know, when we were kids. I was afraid of heights, so I didn't want to be an astronaut. But a lot of kids, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be on a rocket ship. I want to do, you know, this and that. Like, it's, a, it's not, we might laugh, but it's a good thing to aspire to do something that great. It's a good thing to aspire to the office of elder or deacon. And I'll just ask, if you're considering the office of deacon, which some of you should do, what are you doing now? Are you serving now? Many of you are. And that should be, that should be a good encouragement to you that you're on the right path. That should be a way for the church to look at you and say, hey, this, there might be something going on here. God might be preparing this man for office. There's no time like the present for every believer in Christ to begin to look for ways to serve each other, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the little things aren't to be despised. The little things that nobody might notice, well, God notices and other people might notice as well. Our Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke 16.10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in what? In much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So when you're faithful in the small things, it's an evidence that you'll be faithful in the big things and that one day you might be entrusted with those bigger things. We saw that earlier that Paul was not ashamed to call himself a servant. In his other writings, he was even a slave of Christ, Romans 1.1. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the Lord of glory, was not ashamed to wash the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13. In John 13, Jesus washed their feet, or Peter was offended at the idea, couldn't believe that his Lord was doing that to him. And when Jesus finished, this is what he said, John 13, verses 14 through 17. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, he makes no bones about who he is, your Lord and your teacher, your master, if I'm, I'm your Lord and look what I did for you, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's promising a blessing for his people, for service. Jesus set us an example for us to serve one another in godly humility and has even promised his blessing on us when we do these works of service. Not only that, Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus says this. It says, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be what? Your servant. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Ratchets it it up a notch. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. And so there's, no, there's nothing but honor in serving. Uh, greatness comes through serving, not through being served. The way, through, the way to greatness is in serving. That's what Jesus Christ himself even said. He said, the Son of Man, that's a messianic title. 
some even say that's a he's ascribing deity to himself when he says that he's he's affirming that he's the son of god when he says that the son of man came not to be served he could have come to be served we wouldn't be saved he had the right to be served and yet he didn't he served others he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and so really the cross of jesus christ is the greatest motivation a believer could ever have to serve. The gospel is our motivation for service. Our salvation from sin, if you're a Christian this morning, your salvation from your sins uh, came through the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world to serve others and to save you by laying down his life as a ransom for your soul. May our Lord Jesus Christ work in us what's pleasing in his sight that by the work of his spirit within us that we might consider well his cross and the example he set for us and that we might not only believe in Christ for salvation but also that we might then live to serve others in his name and unto his glory. Amen.